going to be looking at John chapter 1 this morning, verses 1 to 18. I'd like to pray for our time together in the Word. Father, as we come before you this day, we thank you that you have given us a written record of the life of Jesus Christ. These stories, the accounts that are included in the book of John were chosen specifically so that we might know something about who Jesus is, what he is like, and what he did when he lived among, the, among us on this earth. And Lord, I pray that our heart would be open today to hear what you have to say to us, that we'd be encouraged, challenged, that we would be stimulated in our thinking in terms of who Jesus is and what that means for our life. I pray that you would do what only you can do by your Holy Spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the sketch that we just saw, uh, Greg had expectations about deal or no deal, didn't he? You know, and probably like many of you, you maybe have seen this show at one time or another or passed it as you were going to something else. But he had clear expectations about what this show was supposed to be like. And he was looking for all of the glitz and the glamour. You know, he had it. It was supposed to be a certain way. And when it didn't meet his expectations, what did he do? He just walked away from it. And as it turns out in the sketch, he walked away from the real deal. Well, in the same way, when Jesus came into our world... People had expectations about what he was going to be like. And Jesus was not at all what people expected. You can go to the first slide here too. You see, the Jewish people thought that Jesus would be a great king like Solomon or David. And they had expectations that when the Messiah came, he would be born in a palace, he would rule from a throne, he would have all of the glory of of the splendor of a human palace, a human king. Jesus wasn't like that at all. He was just an ordinary man, it seemed, who walked and lived among them. A carpenter's son. The revolutionaries at that time thought that the Messiah would be a great warrior. He'd be someone who would lead them in battle, who would be a military hero and help them to overthrow Rome and lead them to victory. Jesus wasn't like that, was He? He came as a man of peace. One who came to bring peace to the human heart. And the religious leaders, they thought that when the Messiah came, He would be a great lawgiver like Moses. Someone who would really set things straight. Someone who would really kind of put things in order. And frankly, Jesus just wasn't religious enough for them. I mean, here was a man that they saw who hung out with sinners and tax collectors, who broke the Sabbath, who didn't follow all of their rules and regulations that they had established. Jesus was nothing at all like what they expected. And John wrote this gospel, his gospel, to say to the world that I want you to know that Jesus is the real deal. And don't walk away from him because he doesn't meet your expectations of what you thought God should be like. Instead, John challenges us to examine the evidence about the life of Christ with an open heart and an open mind. And to take a look and see if there is not something that is truly unique about this person, Jesus Christ. 
In fact, the way that John presents his gospel, it is written like a a well-written dissertation or a research paper that someone would want to present uh, for their doctorate. John's gospel begins with a prologue. And verses 1 to 18 are really the thesis for what he is going to say in this book, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Chapters 2 to 21 are the evidence that this is true. Here's my claim. Here's what I'm going to set out to prove to you. That Jesus is no ordinary man. That Jesus is indeed God's Son, the Savior of the world. And I want you to take a look at the evidence that I present for that in the chapters that follow. And then in John 20, verses 30 and 31, he states his purpose. Why am I doing this? In those verses, it says that Jesus did many other miracles or miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John would later say that if everything was written down about the life of Christ, there aren't enough books that could hold it all. He had seen so many miraculous signs, so many things that Jesus Christ did, learned so much from Him, could say so much about His life that He just couldn't put it all down, so He had to be selective in what He chose. And He said these stories, these accounts and statements about Jesus were intentionally picked so that you might believe that Jesus is the one He claims to be. And that by placing your faith in Him, you would have life in His name. Now, who is John? Well, John is an apostle. He's one of the twelve who traveled with Jesus. He lived and walked with Jesus for over three years of his earthly ministry. Uh, He heard Jesus teach. He saw the way he interacted with people. He saw his love and compassion. He saw his character and integrity. He saw the miracles that he performed. He heard him teach like no one ever taught before with power and authority. He spoke the words of God, and the people heard him gladly, the Scripture says. And so here John is. He's going to build this case. And if you were to ask him, John, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? He would begin by saying that Jesus Christ is God. We see that in verses 1 to 5. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There is a deliberate connection here between the beginning of John's Gospel In the very first book in the Bible, Genesis, John says, in the beginning, just like the book of Genesis begins in the beginning. And he tells us that the Word was there in the beginning. And the Word we're going to see later as he makes the connection and connects the dots for us is Jesus Christ. And why does John do this? Well, John is writing about a new beginning that has come into the world, a new creation, a new opportunity for us to know God. And so he uses words that intentionally pick up upon the first creation. Because here is this opportunity now, a new beginning to become a new creation 
through Jesus Christ. And He tells us that Jesus was there when the worlds were made. In verse 1, Jesus is called the Word. And that term was significant to both Jews and Gentiles living at that time. To the Jews, the Word was holy. The Word of God was an expression that they used. And the Word was an expression of God Himself or a revelation of God. It was true. It was authoritative. God had chosen to reveal Himself through His written Word and that Word was holy and it was to be obeyed. And now John is saying of Jesus that He is the living Word. And just like you have honored God's written Word, I want you to honor the Son who is the living Word of God, the revelation of God Himself. And to the Gentiles... The word was a term that was being used at that time for the rational mind that ruled the universe. They had their philosophies, they had their thoughts, and so here was this term, the word, that was loaded with a lot of meaning for a Gentile, but John is going to redefine it. He's not going to take everything that the word means, just like you know today scientists might talk about a first cause to the universe, and they might mean one thing. And when we talk about the first cause for the universe. We talk about the Creator and we mean something else. John is taking this term logos that the Gentiles understood and now he is going to identify who that real logos, that word, is. Because they saw the evidence of order and design in our universe. They just didn't know who he was. And so John is picking up and he's writing to both audiences, Jew and Gentile. I want you to know who this Word really is. He tells us the Word was there in the beginning, before everything else. In other words, the Word was eternally existent. Jesus has been there from before time began. He tells us that the Word was with God in the beginning. And so here you have something about, here is something that has been eternally existent that was with God for all time, from eternity past. The Word was present with God. They are distinct persons. There is something different about them in one sense. They are distinct and they have an eternal fellowship with one another. Thirdly, he tells us that the Word was God. And He is God. He is eternally existent. He is co-equal with the Father in every way. And yet He is distinct as a person, as the Son. That is a profound statement that is being made about the person of Jesus Christ. We begin to see where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from in verses like these, that God is three in one. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this particular verse, but He is mentioned in the original creation when it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. In other words, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all involved in that act of creation. They are all present. They are all eternal. They are all co-equal. They are one God. That's what we believe. And yet here it will say of Jesus 
that he is the agent, agent of creation. That he was there when the worlds were made. And that through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is there. He along with the Father is the creator of the universe. And that through him the worlds came into being. In the passage I read in our prayer time from Colossians 1.16, Paul says that for by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. In other words, He created the stars and the galaxies, the ones we can see and the ones we can't see. He created atoms and super strings and all of the other things that scientists are trying to unpack and understand as they look at the smallest particles that make up our universe. He created DNA and RNA. He knows our individual makeup and the way that we are fashioned and put together. He created visible matter and invisible matter. He created the human body and the human soul. He created angels and men and plants and animals and birds and fish. And His works are wonderful, the Scripture says. And the psalmist says of man in particular that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Who can understand it all? Leon Morris wrote of this passage that there never was a time when the Word was not. And there never was a thing which did not depend upon Him for its very existence. Not only did He create it all, but Colossians tells us He sustains it all. He's the One who upholds it all by His mighty power. And the point that John is making by statements such as these is that we can trust a God like that. Because He made us, He understands us. Because He's the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, He can meet our needs and He can help us in our time of trouble. In fact, He knows exactly what we need to grow in our relationship with Him. To tweak us and help us to mature in our relationship with Jesus Christ so that we might become all that He wants us to be. There was a man named Charles Steinmetz who was a mechanical genius. And he worked in the early days with Henry Ford, his friend, in establishing the assembly line and manufacturing and all of those things that went with it to design and produce the cars that we run and and drive uh, to get around to work or doing what we need to do. And Charles Steinmetz was just an incredible guy who could build a motor in his mind He could see it. He could fix a motor in his mind so that when he actually did that in practice and put things together, those motors or those plants would run with precision. Well, one day the assembly line in the Ford plant broke down. And Henry Ford called in his guys, you know, all his wise men to do the work on the assembly line, and they couldn't get it running. They couldn't fix the problem. So Ford gave a call to Steinmetz, and he said, Would you come help us out and take a look at what's going on here? And so Charles Steinmetz comes in, he kind of sizes up the problem, he goes over to one spot on the assembly line, he does a little tinkering, flips the switch, and the whole thing's back online and running again. 
People were amazed. A few days later, Ford receives a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. Ford wrote back and he said, Charlie, don't you think your bill is a little high for just a little tinkering? So Steinmetz sent back a revised bill. Tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, (laughs) $9,990. I love that story. You know, that's what God is like. Only Jesus knows exactly what we need. Only He knows the heart of man and where we need to be changed. And He can meet that need. He can fix the problem if we will look to Him and trust Him for His grace in our life. John continues to write in this passage in verses 4 and 5 that Jesus is the source of life and light. We see that again when He says that in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. He's the author of life. He's the source of life. He's the giver of life. And we are dependent upon Him totally. And that life is the light of men. John constantly associates life with the Word in his Gospel. Jesus came that men might have life and might have it abundantly. In other words, to the full. God wants us to experience a full and abundant life, not measured by material things, but measured by joy and peace and satisfaction and meaning and purpose in our life. And we can't find that in other things. People try to do that. They try to fill this hole in their life with other things. But only Jesus Christ can do that and give us life abundantly. He died that men might have eternal life. He gave His flesh for the life of the world and only those who believe in Him and eat of His flesh and drink of His blood have eternal life. Only those who come to Him have life. And when He gives life, men will perish no more. In John 11.25, He declares, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And then what does he do in that account where that's found? That is where he calls forth Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus has been dead four days. And Jesus, the giver of life, restores him to life as a proof of what he just said. What sort of man says such things? I mean, if it was anyone that we knew in our world that we were having a conversation with, you know, if if I'll say if Pastor Dan came up and we're having this conversation and he said to me that I'm the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me will live even though he dies, I'm going to look at him like he's crazy. I mean, who would say those kind of statements, really? And yet here is John, one who lived with Jesus, who walked with Him, who saw His miracles. I mean, if the person making that kind of claim had just brought back to life your friend who had been dead for four days, you would listen to that a little differently, wouldn't you? And it wasn't just once, but many times they saw Jesus do miracles just like that. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. John declares Jesus Christ is God. But he will go on to say that Jesus Christ is also a man. 
He is God in human flesh. In verses 6 to 18. He tells us, first of all, that Jesus' coming was prophetically announced by John the Baptist in verses 6 to 8. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He's referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And so here was this man, John the Baptist, who came, as the Scripture said he would, as a forerunner to Jesus. In the book of Isaiah, it said that there would come this one who would be the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. So here was John baptizing out in the wilderness, calling people to repent, calling them to prepare themselves for the coming of God's anointed one, the Messiah. The Scriptures had foretold the coming of Christ. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Over 60 major ones that are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I mean, it astounds me when people you know, look at Jesus and they want to write Him off as just kind of an ordinary person or a religious leader or a good man or all those kind of things and they have never looked at the evidence. They have never examined the claims of Jesus Christ. They've never looked at what the Scriptures said. Because when you begin to understand that this book was written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors who wrote from different perspectives and walks of life, politicians and religious leaders and farmers and fishermen that are involved in writing all about God's plan of salvation. And there's a unity to this book. You begin to see that Jesus is no ordinary person. There were prophecies made that were totally out of His control. Things like where you're going to be born or who your parents are going to be or your family line. All fulfilled in Jesus to the detail. And John came to point others to the light of Christ. In verses 10 to 13, it says of Jesus that He was revealed to the world, but the world did not recognize Him. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. Do you catch the irony there? Here is the Creator of the world who came to His creation. And they wanted nothing to do with Him. They didn't recognize Him. He said He even came to His own people. In verse 11, He came to that which was His own, to the Jewish nation who had been given the Word of God, but His own did not receive Him. The religious leaders rejected Him. And yet He says to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. John tells us that Jesus became a human like us. The Word became flesh in verses 14 to 18. He said, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'd like to make just a few comments on, on that verse that is so rich and full you could spend a long time studying this particular passage. When he says that the Word became flesh, the Word became there is significant. 
to become something means that he became something he became something different than what he was. You don't become what you are. You become something different than what you are. And that's what happened to Jesus. God, the Word, became a man. He was joining himself to our humanity in the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's one of those mysteries that is so hard for us to understand. How could God become a man? How could the Creator of the universe enter our world as a tiny little baby? How could Mary hold Him in her arms? God, her Creator. It is a wonder of wonders what God did when He sent Jesus. And how Jesus was willing to condescend to our humanity and take upon Himself our flesh is astounding. John said, He made His dwelling among us. That phrase, to make His dwelling, or lived among us, means literally, He pitched His tent among us temporarily. He came into this world, He took on a human body, but He chose to live here just temporarily. In those few short years of His earthly life, He accomplished everything that was needed for our salvation. He is forever joined to us in His humanity. He is the God-man. But the time that He spent on earth was brief in comparison to all of eternity. And I think about that phrase, He pitched His tent among us, or He tabernacled among us is what it's saying. It brings to mind the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God chose to dwell among His people and that place was filled with His glory. That's what Jesus did. In the transfiguration, those who were with Him, the disciples, saw His glory revealed when He was transfigured before them and His glory shone through. And it was awesome. John says, we have seen His glory. It is the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, one and only, means that He is unique. He's one of a kind. There's no one else like Jesus. Just like when we look at things in our world, we look at the Grand Canyon, there are other canyons, but there's only one Grand Canyon, and it is unique. It's one of a kind. We look at the Statue of Liberty in New York City, in the harbor, and we see that, and we say that is unique. That's one of a kind. There may be models, there may be replicas of that, but they are not the Statue of Liberty that's in New York City. Or when someone sees a jewel like the Hope Diamond, it is unique. It's one of a kind. There's no other diamond like that. John was saying of Jesus that there is no one like Jesus, the God-man. He stands alone. And He came from the Father full of grace and truth. And if that isn't enough to get your attention, I don't know what will. But He goes on in verses 15-18 to 18 to say concerning Him, that John testified concerning Him. John the Baptist said, This was He of whom I said He who comes after Me has surpassed Me because He was before Me. John the Baptist was esteemed by men, and yet he is saying that Jesus is far greater than John the Baptist. In verses 16 and 17, Moses was esteemed by men. But John is saying that Jesus is far greater than Moses. From the fullness of Jesus' grace, we have all received one blessing after another. 
Every day we receive blessings that all come through Jesus Christ. Our life, our health, our family, our friends, our homes, the things we own are all blessings. The fact that the sun came up this morning or that we were able to come to church is a blessing from God. Everything we have has come from His hand. He tells us in verse 17 that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses was the lawgiver who was given that and brought it to man to show us something about the character of God. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, God's mercy and His forgiveness. His atonement, His payment for our sin came through Jesus Christ so that we might know God and live with Him for eternity. He tells us in verse 18 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. That verse always raises questions for people because they'll say, what do you mean no one's ever seen God? I thought in the Old Testament it said that Moses, you know, talked with God face to face and he saw a little bit of His glory or Isaiah had a vision and saw a little bit of God's glory and all those things. And that's exactly right. What this verse is saying is that no one has ever seen God because God is spirit. And our eyes, our physical eyes, our ocular apparatus, if you will, cannot see the spiritual world that's around us. We don't see the angels that are here today as we meet to worship. We don't see God's Holy Spirit who is at work in us. Because our eyes aren't made to see that. Every time that someone saw God or a vision of God's glory or saw the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle in the Old Testament or saw the glory that came down on Mount Sinai in the smoke and the fire or saw the pillar that led them in the wilderness, all of those things were condensation, uh, condescensions to us. They were expressions or manifestations of who God is. But they weren't seeing God who is spirit. Because our physical eyes can't see that. And if we did see God in all of His fullness and glory, we would die. Because we are not prepared for that. We need to be fitted for heaven. And for that day when we will see Jesus face to face. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And if you want to know what God is really like, then look at Jesus. He is God, the one and only, the unique Son of God who is now seated in heaven at His Father's right hand. Jesus is the one who has made Him known. The book of Hebrews says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of His being. The exact representation of His being. He sustains all things by His powerful Word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. His work was finished, and so He sat down. That's my thesis, John says. You've heard the argument. You've heard the claim. And I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you are willing to listen to what I have said. He's the real deal. He's not a cheap imitation. 
I want to go back to verses 10 to 13 as we close. It said in those verses that Jesus was revealed to the world and the world did not receive Him. That still happens today, doesn't it? As the world system is following Satan and his plans, it doesn't want anything to do with God and His Word. There are people in our world today who have no clue about who Jesus is. They live in darkness because they've never heard the truth of the Gospel or because their eyes are still blinded to that truth. Even then, His own people, the Jews, rejected Him because He didn't meet their expectations. He didn't come in the way that they thought He was supposed to come. But the Bible says to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, to those who opened their heart and were willing to take a look, He gave the right to become a child of God. You know, as we go through this book, we're going to see what true belief is. John's book is probably more theological than any of the other Gospels in terms of statements that it makes about who Jesus is that are so profound in terms of what real belief is. Because what we'll see in the Gospel of John is that real belief is not lip service. It's not saying, I believe just with my lips, and it's not mental assent and saying, okay, I kind of think that. To believe in Jesus is to follow Him. It is to trust Him. It's to accept Him. It's to worship Him. And it's to obey Him. It is a commitment that's made with our heart and life. True belief is being willing to place our trust, our confidence, our hope in Him. Have you done that? Have you placed your trust in Him? If you'd like to do that today as we close, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. But if you are not ready to do that, I would ask you to do this. Would you be willing to examine the evidence for faith and pray a prayer like this, that Lord Jesus, if You are indeed the Son of God, Would you make yourself known to me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book that we are going to be walking through um, for the rest of this year. And I pray that you would help us to get a good look at who Jesus is and to see how profoundly that affects our life each and every day. And I pray that we would live in a way that pleases you, that we would trust you and obey you and follow you. And Father, today, if there's anyone here, if you have never made a commitment to Christ in that way, but you'd like to and you want to know Jesus, I'd ask you to just open your heart to Him and pray a prayer just like this. Lord Jesus, I need You. And I want You to be my Savior and Lord. I ask You to forgive my sins. Come into my heart. Work in me those things that are pleasing to You. And help me to know You better. God will take you at your word and he will come into your life and he will help you to grow in your relationship with him we pray this all in jesus name amen